day six now, and I guess we call it the long economic tale of war, huh? From American Public Media, this is Marketplace. In Los Angeles, I'm Kai Rizdal. It is Tuesday today, the first day of March. Good as always to have you along, everybody. We are going to begin today with a very brief rundown of various investments and asset classes here on day six of the war in Ukraine. Equities, that is stocks, both here and in Europe, red all the way around. Asia, a little bit in the green. The Moscow exchange closed for a second straight day, by the way. Oil, both the U.S. and global benchmarks, up almost 10%, both of them over $105 a barrel at the close, eight-year highs, if you're keeping track. Corn, wheat, oats, soybean, all of them up. Also up Bitcoin, almost 2% today, 15% in the past five days. And it turns out that this war might be a crypto moment. Over the weekend, the official Ukrainian government Twitter account asked for donations of Bitcoin and Ethereum and some other digital currencies. There are reports that that has generated $20 million worth of donations to date. And then the very next day, Ukraine's vice prime minister made a different request, asking global cryptocurrency exchanges to freeze accounts owned by Russian citizens so that Russia can't use crypto to get around all the sanctions. Marketplace's Matt Levin gets us going with the role that crypto is playing in this conflict. Russia has one of the highest rates of cryptocurrency use in the world, and lately that's likely gone up. We have seen a spike in seeing rubles being converted into Bitcoin. Caroline Malcolm is with Chainalysis, which monitors global crypto activity. She says most of that spike is likely everyday Russians fearing bank runs. But some of that activity may be sanctioned oligarchs trying to protect their money. And Lee Reiners at Duke School of Law says that is tough to police. It's a bit like playing whack-a-mole. Crypto's anonymity and its decentralized nature is always going to pose a challenge when it comes to sanctions compliance. But at some point, crypto moles have to come up for air and convert digital currency to dollars or euros. That happens at crypto exchanges, those websites that flooded the Super Bowl with ads. And Caroline Malcolm at Chainalysis says they are required to enforce sanctions. And the U.S. Treasury, for example, which with its sanctions, has made that very, very clear that whether you are um, the sanctioned entities are holding funds in traditional financial accounts or they're holding them on crypto exchanges, that is sanctioned activity. But part of the problem is the exchanges themselves, says Duke's Lee Reiners. You know, frankly, Matt, they don't have the best track record on this front. Reiner says while some larger U.S.-based exchanges have complied appropriately, it's taken others years to come on board. So what about the Russian state? Could cryptocurrency help unfreeze its hundreds of billions of dollars in foreign reserves? Michael Greenwald is a former Treasury Department official. He says no way. There's no digital currency platform that is going to help Russia out of this situation right now. Greenwald is not alone in that sentiment. Still, he thinks Russian officials don't have a lot of other options. Besides gold and besides their reserves in China, uh, it is digital assets in crypto markets. The U.S. Treasury has yet to publicly identify the specific crypto accounts it thinks belongs to sanctioned Russian actors. But it might not be long before it does. I'm Matt Levin for Marketplace. 
Apple said today it's pausing all sales in Russia, the latest in a long and growing list of companies trying to distance themselves from Moscow as the fighting in Ukraine gets worse. Shell and BP, Daimler Truck and General Motors, Hollywood Studios and pension funds, liquor stores even, boycotting Russian vodka. Marketplace's Megan McCarty Carino has that whole story. We've seen wide-scale repudiation of a country by the global business community before, The divestment campaign to protest apartheid in South Africa comes to mind. But this feels different, says Gary Huffbauer at the Peterson Institute. It's really much bigger and much faster. While South African divestment took decades, this exodus has happened in a matter of days and from a starting point of much deeper connections, especially for European companies, he says. They've seen it as a very promising market. Russia was the place to invest in. Companies leaving Russia could be worried they'll get caught up in sanctions or that the Russian government could seize their assets. But for many, these decisions seem to go beyond business, says Nico Safos with the Center for Strategic and International Studies. We're seeing European companies be willing to say, I'm done, I'm out, I'm willing to write off the whole thing. I think just speaks to the psychological impact of this war. Of course, he says, there is a risk once firms pull out, they might never be able to get back in. But for many companies, the risk of alienating the public at home is probably greater, says Daniel Corshin, a marketing professor at Drexel University. They know that it's something that their customers and employees care really deeply about. He says expectations for companies to respond to world events have never been higher. And the more that do, the more pressure builds on other business leaders they're asking themselves, do I want to be the person who didn't do something? At least in the case of Russia, he says, there's a much broader consensus than on the domestic social and political issues companies are now expected to weigh in on. I'm Megan McCarty Carino for Marketplace. On Wall Street today, bonds, people, bonds. Seriously, flight to safety. We'll have the details when we do the numbers. Without discounting the terrible situation on the ground in Ukraine, one key part of this war is the information war. Also, to be clear, the disinformation war. And that goes some way to explaining the pressure that social media companies are under. Facebook's parent company Meta, also YouTube and TikTok, have banned the Russian state media channels Russia Today, RT it's called, and Sputnik from their platforms in Europe. In a statement that was posted, interestingly, on Twitter... Meta's president of global affairs, Nick Clegg, who, not for nothing, used to be the deputy prime minister of the United Kingdom. Anyway, Clegg said the company had deplatformed RT and Sputnik after receiving requests from, quote, a number of governments and the EU. And when you remember that social media companies have long and strongly resisted such calls, these bans are quite something. Marketplace's Samantha Fields has that one. Long before Russia invaded Ukraine last week, the Kremlin was laying the groundwork online, says Imred Ahmed at the nonprofit Center for Countering Digital Hate. The war in Ukraine didn't start with missiles or tanks. It started with disinformation, which has been dripped into people's news feeds over, over years now. Ahmed says Russia spread a lot of that through RT and Sputnik, so this ban is significant. 
When it comes to the world's most prodigious output of disinformation, which is the Russian state, it is about time that the single worst actor on the global stage feels some consequences on social media. For years, social media companies have largely resisted pressure to take down or ban content on their sites, even when it's proven to be false and dangerous. Juliet Kayyem at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government says they have done it. They're good about banning the possibility of putting child pornography on. They got better about deplatforming ISIS and other terrorist organizations. But Kayyem says this is different. This is a state-sponsored media outlet. They've never really done this before. But social media platforms banning users or content at the request of governments does set a new precedent, one that Jessica Brandt at the Brookings Institution is concerned about. There's just so many shades of gray, and I fear that many other governments will make requests of many other platforms in many other political contexts to take down content that they view as problematic or opposed to their interests. That could have long-lasting ramifications, Brandt says, and she's concerned about platforms making these kinds of decisions on the fly with very little transparency. I'm Samantha Fields for Marketplace. About a year ago, Mariel Segarra did a story for us about a small pharmacy in Camden, New Jersey, that was waiting for its chance to start giving COVID shots. And just as a straight-up business proposition, that was an investment of time and money into building that capacity that the pharmacy owner was having to make without knowing when the first shipments of vaccines might arrive. So Mariel went back to Camden the other day to see how it all shook out. At this point, if you walk into Bell Pharmacy, you will find a well-oiled machine. There's a table to your right where you fill out paperwork for your vaccine or COVID test. After you have your paperwork, you come on in here. That's Bell's owner and head pharmacist, Tony Minitti. He leads me into a small room off the main pharmacy and points to a pile of envelopes. See, those are there's the test right there. They're going to go out for the courier. Next, you're greeted by a nurse. Shots are prepared in the back. You sit down and then it's all done. Bell Pharmacy is in a neighborhood of Camden called Parkside. Many of the people who live here are seniors. And this time last year, they were having a really hard time getting vaccinated at mega sites and chain pharmacies. It was an appointment-only system. If you didn't have access to technology, uh, you had very little chance of getting an appointment. The other thing, most of the people who live in Parkside are Black. And when Manitti was trying to get his vaccine program going, Black Americans were more likely to get COVID and die from it. And they were being vaccinated at much lower rates than white Americans. So Manitti worked with community groups who went door to door to get the word out about the vaccine. And they promised that when Bell Pharmacy finally got the vaccine, local residents would get priority. Bell got its first shipment in early April. And almost instantly, its online appointment system was flooded with requests from people outside the city. I'd go on the scheduler. Everybody would be from Philly or an outlying suburb. Nobody from Camden can get an appointment. Minity had set up the system so you'd have to put in your zip code and then wait for him to approve the appointment. So he just kept bumping non-residents down the list. And then he realized people who live in Parkside were just walking in and asking for a shot. So the appointment system, he got rid of it. And after that, things went pretty smoothly for about a week. Until the CDC paused its authorization of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, a very small percentage of people had gotten blood clots. And that was a big blow because it was the only vaccine Bell Pharmacy had at the time and because it made some people afraid to get vaccinated at all. It was those who were sort of on the fence 
and they're, they're kind of getting on board with it, and then this happens. Eventually, the CDC unpaused the vaccine, and things ramped back up, especially when the pharmacy got shipments of Pfizer and Moderna. In the fall, the pharmacy pivoted from doing a lot of vaccines to a lot of tests, and it started offering monoclonal antibody therapies, a treatment that can make COVID less severe for people who already have it. The antibodies can be infused or given through four shots all at once. You just go like one, two, three, four. Uh, Typically, someone would get, you know, sometimes people get all four in one arm. Then patients have to wait for an hour in case of a reaction. So Maniti bought four black recliner chairs and a TV and set them up in a room on the second floor of the pharmacy. Yeah, I mean, this area here is separated from, you know, the pharmacy proper because, well, these are COVID-positive patients. We're sitting in the room now. It was available because the FDA recently pulled back its authorization of certain kinds of monoclonal antibody treatments, saying they were ineffective against the Omicron variant. So yeah, Bell has had to roll with the punches. But Minetti says that's possible because the pharmacy is small and he owns it. It's kind of like how he snapped his fingers and got rid of the appointment system. Since it's just me, I can evolve in real time. You know, the appointments aren't working, so they're gone. He doesn't have to make his case to a big corporation like he would as a pharmacist at a chain. And he says that makes it easier to serve his community. On that note, Bell Pharmacy has done more than 5,000 vaccinations in the past year. 95% went to Camden residents. I'm Marielle Segarra for Marketplace. Coming up, we're moving the industry forward one house at a time. I mean, if you say so. But first, let's do the numbers. Dow Industrials down 598 points today, one and eight tenths percent, closed at 33,394. The Nasdaq down 219, 1.6%, 13,532. The SP 500 down 68 points, about 1.6%, 43 and 6. There, heard from Megan McCarty Carino. About all those companies in the process of getting out of Russia, General Motors, which also said it would suspend vehicle exports, slowed four and seven tenths percent today. Harley Davidson, which halted its bike shipments, lost three percent. Anybody know Harley's ticker symbol? Anybody? Come on, tweet at me if you know it. Hormel Foods, maker of Spam, Applegate products, and Skippy peanut butter. Who knew? For, for reported first quarter earnings today, including three billion dollars in net sales, Hormel dished up almost four percent. Bond prices, I mentioned this. Here's the deal. Flight to safety, right? People want the safety of American debt. That drives the yield down 1.71% on the 10-year. You're listening to Marketplace. How hard is it to regulate algorithms? China is about to find out. From American Public Media, this is Marketplace Tech. I'm Kimberly Adams. Today, China's government will start enforcing regulations on companies that use algorithms in their products or services to do things like control search results, recommend videos, or set prices. It's part of China's broader efforts to crack down on its tech sector. These new rules would, among other things, prohibit companies from using someone's personal information to show them a different price for a product compared to someone else. 
As part of our Quality Assurance Series, we're taking a deeper look at these policies. Jennifer Conrad is covering the story for Wired. What's impressive about these regulations is the scope of them. They cover everything from ride hail services and things like that, where a worker may be dispatched based on an algorithm to the kind of content that you see when you go on a website to recommendation algorithms for, say, e-commerce and also the different prices that people might see. There are going to be regulations in place that say that you can't discriminate against someone based on their buying habits or the type of iPhone they use, which the companies will have to comply with. Can you give me an example of what this will feel like for Chinese consumers? What's going to be different from the way it is now? First, they'll be notified that algorithms are being used to target them with certain kinds of content or to show them what sort of things they may want to buy. And then they will be informed if they are being targeted with algorithms, and then they will have the option to either opt out or to have certain tags removed. How enforceable are these new rules in China? I think what we've seen over the past 18 months is that When the Chinese government decides to crack down on tech platforms, they can be very, very effective. For example, Didi Chuxing, which is a ride hail service, had its app pulled from the app stores just after its U.S. IPO, and it caused its stock price to tank. This was allegedly because of data practices that they needed to clean up. On the other hand, you know, with an algorithm, with the constantly changing software that you have there, there may be some things that are a little bit difficult to get visibility into. And with rules in place like this, how does China compare with other countries when it comes to regulating algorithms? So I think there's a good comparison with the European Union and parts of Europe where there is some overlap. You'll see in particular this idea of giving people informed consent or giving people the opportunity to opt out. Where there's a difference, and Sylvia de Concha, who is a legal scholar based in the Netherlands, put it to me this way, that... In Europe and in the EU, there's a focus on individual rights and human rights, whereas in China, they see these as collective issues. And so a lot of these rules, the way they're written, it's about maintaining a positive online environment, a healthy online environment, an online environment that promotes socialist values. And so that gets into some of the elements of content moderation that a Western country may not be so comfortable with. I mean, we should probably note here China's government does have stronger control over its economy and markets, especially compared to other Western and more open market oriented countries. Does that uniquely position China to be able to implement regulations like these? Yeah, I think that there are two things that you kind of see. One is that they can act with extreme speed when they want to. These rules were first proposed last fall in a draft form, and then the final version came out a couple of months ago, and now they're set to go into effect March 1st. If you look at the U.S., parts of Europe, you know, for years, people have been debating when and how rules should go into effect. And one thing that you see a lot with China is these big companies will be unregulated for a very long time, but then when they put in rules, it tends to be very swift and very comprehensive. And so I think that's what we're seeing now is sort of a correction to the lack of guardrails that were in place in the past and a very comprehensive effort to put new rules into place. 
Jennifer Conrad co-wrote the piece, China is about to regulate AI and the world is watching with Will Knight for Wired. We'll have a link to that Wired piece on our website, marketplacetech.org. And if you actually want to read the details of China's new rules, Stanford University's DigiChina project has translated the entire regulatory policy and has the original Chinese language text. We'll link to that as well. Here in the U.S., there are some efforts to regulate algorithms and artificial intelligence, the most recent attempt coming in the form of the Algorithmic Accountability Act of 2022, introduced just last month. It would require companies to check their algorithms to see if the systems are vulnerable to bias and discrimination. The European Union is working on its own regulations on algorithms and AI, and will link to the legal website Lexology, which has a summary of the European Commission's proposed rules. Lawmakers in Europe, however, haven't made much progress getting these draft regulations passed. Reuters reports that the commission is still split on issues related to facial recognition tech, say to identify people in crowds, and whether these rules should be enforced by each individual country or by the European Union overall. I'm Kimberly Adams, and that's Marketplace Tech. This is APM. This is Marketplace. I'm Kai Rizdal. The economic restrictions that are tightening around Russia aren't all about financials or currencies or oligarchs and their assets. Over the weekend, both the European Union and Canada banned Russian aircraft from their airspace. There is pressure on the United States to do the same, we should say. Russia, in turn, has responded by banning European flights. And while that has affected passenger planes, yes, it has also made a mess, more of a mess, I grant you, of the global supply chain. So we got Gretchen Blau on the phone this morning. She is the customs broker at a company called Logistics Plus in Erie, PA, who we talk to every now and then about logistics and shipping. And here is what she had to say. We're seeing an increase in cost, especially air freight. All the planes have been rerouted. There's all these connecting flights and there's all kinds of commercial flights that have been interrupted because of this. And most air cargo does does travel on commercial flights. So that's been quite an impact there. We have some air charters that we've booked um, coming from China to the U.S. with COVID test kits, and that's increased by half a million dollars so far. We do have an office in Ukraine, so we're all pretty worried about them. Um, our ops team works with them quite a bit. You know, there's a lot of close relationships there, and, and we're quite worried about our team over there. Our European counterparts are quite worried as well. They want to help. Um, a lot of our European colleagues have reached out and um, offered lodging, clothing, um, transportation, whatever is needed to our colleagues in Ukraine. So far, seven of our colleagues have been evacuated from Ukraine to Poland and Romania. And, you know, they're staying with either friends of our company or actual um, employees of our company. We're going to be watching the situation in Ukraine quite closely, not only from the perspective of, you know, our office over there, but just how this, you know, might spread. There's all kinds of stuff we have to watch. Um, there's weather, there's fuel prices, there's 
a lot of stuff that comes into play in the supply training, port congestion. Um, this is just one more thing that impacts the supply chain. Unfortunately, it has a huge human cost and that that probably makes it the the worst thing of all. Sometimes you just sit around doing the paperwork. You don't think about the ripple effect of everything involved in, in the supply chain. Before, it was just kind of a job, you know, an interesting job. But now I see the impact that my job has throughout the country, throughout even my local community, you know, making sure that, that stuff is on the store shelves. So kind of gives us insight into how important it really is to be involved in the supply chain. Gretchen Blau, our customs broker in Erie, Pennsylvania. We told you about that new and dire UN report yesterday that climate change is quickly getting to a point where adaptation just ain't going to be possible anymore. Too much carbon in the air for us to do anything about it. So how about a story about one small effort to reduce the amount of greenhouse gases that our homes produce? Every year, the National Association of Home Builders unveils what it calls the New American Home, a model home designed to wow attendees at its annual International Builders Show held, as it happens, not too long ago. This year's model is in the Lake Nona neighborhood of Orlando, Florida, and it just sold for $2.7 million, which, believe it or not, is low for the typical New American Home. It boasts some green building certifications, as well as something you might start seeing more of in new houses— Net zero energy. Marketplace's Amy Scott tried to figure out what that really means. Walking into the 4,600-square-foot new American home, sustainability isn't the first thing that leaps to mind. Obviously, I know that the wine room has grabbed your attention. The glass-paneled, climate-controlled wine room stacked floor-to-ceiling with bottles. So for that wine room, that is the W-Series Luxe Wine Rack Frame System from Vintage View. That is Kristen, the first of eight guides stationed throughout the sprawling house to rattle off its luxury features. The two-person programmable shower with 12 different nozzles. The tiled dog washing station in the garage. Janine shows us the courtyard swimming pool with built-in lounge chairs. Now behind you is the cabana. One of the home's two outdoor kitchens. It features a large grill. Wait, did she just say two outdoor kitchens? Yes, she said two outdoor kitchens. When we get up to the second one on the roof deck, the whole green thing starts to make a little more sense. Here's Autumn. Now from here, you can get a great view of the rooftop solar array from LG Solar. The roof is covered with several large solar panels soaking up the Florida sun. Now, this is a 13.68 kilowatt system that offsets more than 100% of the home's energy use and was critical to achieving a HERS index of minus 15. Translation, the house can generate at least as much power from its solar panels as it uses. That's what net zero energy means. And it's catching on in the home building industry. 
Matthew Black coordinates the Advancing Net Zero program at the World Green Building Council. Its goal is to decarbonize the building industry by 2050. He says getting there will require a big reduction in residential energy use, which contributes a whopping 20 percent of carbon emissions in the United States. Energy efficiency is a really important part of this. You know, if if we don't build a home to be efficient, then it's still going to be uh, consuming an awful lot of energy and we're going to have to build more and more capacity to meet that demand. But Black says we also need to think more about what he calls embodied carbon emissions created in the manufacturing, transportation, and construction phases of building. He says the embodied carbon in buildings makes up around 11 percent of global emissions. The outdoor kitchens, the swimming pool, and even, you know, the overall size of the building, all of those choices have emissions associated with them. When you consider all that, it's hard to say how green the new American home really is. Josh Kane is vice president of Two Trails, the sustainability consultant on the project. He says it was built to meet the highest national standards for energy and water efficiency, air quality, and waste reduction. And if it looks a bit over the top, he says that's intentional. The hope is that builders will leave inspired. It showcased what luxury can be. And that you can still have a luxury house and and have it still be sustainable and energy efficient. The idea here is that we're moving the industry forward one house at a time. But building enough zero energy homes to make a real difference will take a massive investment. It can add 10 to 20 percent to the cost of building, though a lot of that is recouped over time. On the tour, I talked to Ron Nance with the Oaks Development Company in Lawton, Oklahoma. He says he has been building more energy-efficient homes, but he's not sure net zero would pay off for him. I want to leave the smallest environmental footprint that I can whenever I leave this earth. But in reality, um, people like that, but a lot of times they're not willing to pay additional for that. They would rather have a little bit bigger house or uh, a little bit smaller mortgage payment. Especially now, when both prices and mortgage interest rates are going up. In Orlando, I'm Amy Scott for Marketplace. Final note on the way out today, it is all over for the Felicity Ace. That's the car carrier ship that caught fire a couple of weeks ago with something like 4,000 cars on it. Porsches and Bentleys, Audis, Lamborghinis, a bunch of electric vehicles too. The crew got off. The thing has been burning and drifting ever since, but no more. Salvage crews tried to take it under tow today. The hull couldn't take it. Sank in two miles of water in the Atlantic off the Azores. Insured losses figured about uh, $155 million. All right, we're off. But here's your moment of economic context. I touched on oil up at the top of the program, the U.S. and global benchmarks and how high their prices have gotten. You know what kind of oil is pretty cheap? Russian oil. Oil. The Wall Street Journal reports that Urals, as Russian oil is known, is being discounted as much as 18 bucks off global prices. And even then, the paper says, 
Buyers are scarce. Our digital and on-demand team includes Carrie Barber, Siobhan Brett, Dylan Mietinen, Janet Wynn, Olga Oxman, Donna Tam, and Tony Wagner. I'm Kai Rizdal. We will see you tomorrow, everybody. This is APM.